you will join me this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel 15, we will be looking at verse 22. The Blue ESV Bible, you can find that on page 238. 1 Samuel chapter 15, we will look at verse 22. The title of our sermon this morning is Biblical Worship Before the Throne of God. And our keywords for our worshipers in training are regulative, worship, and word. Now this morning we continue in our series looking at principles of the Protestant Reformation. At the end of October we come to the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation and I've been talking about it all year so some of you can't wait for the end of October so I will move on. Um, but in our case uh, specifically we draw from that heritage as a Reformed local church. It's very important to us and uh, we've been looking at why that is over the last few weeks and we'll continue through the end of the month. We've been thinking about the major points of reform that took place in the 16th and 17th centuries as faithful men and women were striving to recover the truth of the faith from the corruption that had overtaken the church. And we've seen over and over again that, that these weren't just minor differences of opinion. These weren't issues of, of preference or theological quibbles that were rather insignificant. But they were important matters that struck at the heart of the gospel and what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be the church. So that being said, this morning we're going to look at an area of reform that has deeply important implications for the church Today, in terms of significant outward change to the church and how it does what it does and how it did what it did at the time of the Reformation, this was the most obvious of the reforms to those who were watching. There were certainly many theological changes, but in terms of outward visible change, the worship of the church was the most obvious transformation. Over time, the reforms that were made in worship were systematically developed into what today is known as the regulative principle of worship. And so we're going to focus our attention on that this morning. Now, if you recall, two weeks ago, we looked at the fifth sola, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone, and we said then that that primarily was focused on the worship of God. And so this morning, we're going to take that principle that we worship God to His glory alone, and we're going to look at a more practical sense of how God calls us to do that. How are we to worship God to His glory alone? Now, before we get to our text, I want to take a minute to consider something of the historical background. What was typical of what people understood worship in the church to be in the 16th century prior to the Reformation? In other words, why were they so concerned that they saw the need for reformation? Now, it was, of course, the Roman Catholic Mass. And no matter where Mass was held, it was, con it was conducted in Latin, and so most of the people didn't know what was being said at all. They didn't know Latin, but everything was in Latin. Additionally, the only real participant in the Mass was, was the priest. And so the people were nothing more than observers. They didn't understand what was being said. They certainly didn't understand what was going on. And so they became an audience to everything that took place. The Word of God was rarely present in the Mass, other than a few readings scattered throughout, but again in Latin, so it was never understood. And throughout, the most troubling thing of all for the Reformers was that the church was what the church determined worship actually was. For the Roman Catholic Church, 
Worship was primarily a movement to a sacrifice. Now, Rome had developed a theological framework whereby the most important element of the church was the sacrifice of the Eucharist. Here's what that means. Roman Catholicism teaches that the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper become the actual body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ once the priest consecrates them, even though they will still look like and still have the same properties as bread and wine, but they call them the body and blood of Christ, actual. It's a sort of ritualistic recitation, and then when that's done, the transformation is complete. I'm not joking when I say this, literally the phrase to be said for that to happen is hocus pocus. And then, once that transformation takes place, the now body and blood of Christ are once again sacrificed for the people. So when you enter a Catholic church, what do you see front and center? It isn't a table where a meal is served to the people. It isn't a pulpit where the Word of God is preached. It is an altar. And what happens on an altar? A sacrifice. That is, by the way, why I think it is wrong to call this area an altar. We don't have an altar because we aren't making any sacrifices. That's language sort of imported from the ancient idea and used to talk about things like altar calls. Well, we don't have an altar. There is no holy space in here. But the major issue here is that Christ's sacrifice isn't happening again and again and again. It's not perpetual. The sacrifice of Christ is not something being offered every time the church gathers for worship. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross was once and for all. It was complete. It was sufficient. It was veil-tearing and ground-shaking and earth-darkening. And it was the single most important act of God for the sake of mankind's salvation that was foretold and awaited and now looked back upon and celebrated. But for the Catholic Church, this was, and still is today, the meaning of the Mass. It's a time to gather and sacrifice Christ. One leading Catholic theologian writes, The sacrament is directed immediately to the sanctification of men, the sacrifice to the glorification of God. In other words, it helps the person who is observing the sacrifice, and they have grace actually infused, put into them, and then God is pleased with the sacrifice of the Son all over again, day after day after day. So to be clear, Rome believes that every time the bread and the wine are consecrated and divided amongst the people to be consumed, Christ is once again being offered up as a sacrifice on their behalf. It is a continual reenactment of the sacrifice of Christ. And by this, the communicant, the, the person partaking of the Eucharist, is infused with the grace of Christ. And so in the 16th century, this, this ritual had come to the point where the people were only even allowed to partake of the bread, the body. They weren't even given the blood, the wine. That was reserved for the priest only, which often resulted in his drunkenness. Now, one more aspect of what Rome calls adoration. One Roman Catholic scholar writes, if the bread and wine were present at Mass and they become what Jesus says they become, then they are to be worshipped. 
He goes on to explain, in adoration we do what the angels do. We fall down and we worship. So perhaps you've been to a Catholic Mass and you see Catholics in the aisle prior to getting into their pew. They genuflect. They bend their knee and they do the sign of the cross. They are doing that to the bread and the wine. One Catholic scholar writes, we kneel to our Lord present in the blessed sacrament. In other words, the consecrated host kept in the ornamented safe called a tabernacle with a lit candle nearby. We do this when entering or leaving his presence or when passing by. I hope you understand what he's saying there. Christ, in other words, is, is in bread and wine that's kept in a safe called the tabernacle. He is bread and wine. So, so not only does this take place in the Mass every single day, but once a year there is an observance, a holiday called adoration when the Eucharist is consecrated and the people take turns coming in for an hour or two and worshiping the bread and the wine. They're adoring Christ. This was the practice in the 16th century and this is the practice today. And so, while many will hear this and, and, and think we're just sort of on a, uh, we're on a mission to attack, we're not. We're simply stating, all I'm simply stating to you is what they believe. And now examining it along with our Reformed forefathers in light of the Scriptures. You see, the problem as the Reformers saw it, and the problem as we see it, in Rome's articulation of the Eucharist is hopefully very obvious to you. Most importantly, it's that the Bible anchors our faith to blood that has already been shed. Once and for all, offered in the heavenly places for sin. The perpetual sacrifice in the Mass and the supposed infusing grace into believers is exactly the thing the book of Hebrews was written to reject. The supper is not intended to be a perpetual sacrifice. It's, it's not intended to be worshipped and adored. It is not intended to be considered the actual body and blood of Christ. Even Martin Luther, who himself believed in the physical presence of Christ in the supper, did not believe Rome was biblical in terms of how the bread and the wine became the physical substance of Christ, nor the place of the supper in the worship of the church and as it should be seen. Additionally, in the Mass at that time, there was no congregational singing. That has changed a bit today. The reading of the Word, again, was in Latin. There was no, virtually no preaching of the Bible whatsoever. The prayers were all rote and very generic. In essence, all that God had done in Christ to free His people from the arduous practices and rituals of the Old Covenant were, in some sense, taking on a different form and present within the Mass. It wasn't a time of joyful communion with God and His people. It was a mandatory ritual for anyone wanting to be devout and obedient, even though they were largely in the dark as to what was even being said or going on. So the Reformers saw all of this. And as they understood the Scriptures, they began to make changes to how the church 
was worshiping. They, they had access now to the writings of the early church fathers, and they saw how they were worshiping, and they, they realized the Bible and the practice of the church historically was not consistent with what they saw going on in their day. In fact, biblical worship in the New Covenant looked completely different from what was going on in the Mass and is still going on in the Mass today. And so it was because of the Reformers that biblical worship was recovered and why we have such a strong sense of the the need to maintain what they recovered and what they did for our faithfulness today. That being said, I want to think about our foundational verse this morning, and we'll look more closely at biblical worship and the regulative principle. Look at 1 Samuel 15 and what we see in verse 22. Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Now, the leading question for us to consider this morning is how is God to be worshipped? And in a certain sense, I believe we can rightly say that the entire Bible is setting the stage for the true worship of God. It's the establishment of the true worship of the true God. In fact, beyond the Reformation, there were battles, real war, with real blood being spilt over this question of how we worship. In, in England, there was a hundred-year war fought over this in the Puritan era. So it's no small issue. And, and I believe we dishonor those who gave their lives to answer for that and who stood for truth when we don't consider what the Bible teaches on this matter, when we just say that's their way of doing it and we have ours. That's not acceptable. It's more significant than that. And so, for that reason, and I believe rightly so, there, are really many question, there, are, there aren't really many questions more important than this. What is worship and how shall it be done? To be saved, to be in Christ, is to be freed up from the blindness of idolatry and self-focus and self-worship and self-sufficiency and self-preservation. And to be in Christ means to turn our eyes and our hearts and our lives to the true God. And when we are brought to see God as God, what else can we do but worship Him? It was the experience of the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 6, when he, saw, when he saw Christ high and lifted up on the throne, it was the experience of Paul and the experience of the apostle John in, in his revelation. And, and when you're made a new creation in Christ, it is your experience that you are brought to worship. You see, in reality, the question is as big of an issue today as it was in the 16th century. And, and while the same kinds of things are not always being propagated and put forth in worship today as they were then, the question of worship, perhaps you've heard of the worship wars in evangelical circles, it's a question to be asked repeatedly and it is often debated. It causes church splits. It is the topic of countless books. In fact, if you look at the evangelical landscape, the first thing you're going to see The thing you're going to recognize and notice more readily than anything else in any church 
is probably going to be how that church worships, what they think about worship. If you're visiting here today for the first time, perhaps you've looked at our website, perhaps you have some idea of what we believe and hold to be true and important, but on some level, for most people, their first impression of a church and understanding who they are and what they believe comes by way of observing the worship of the church. Now that's really important. It's really as natural for all of us, all humans, to worship as it is for us to breathe. We are created as worshipers. Everyone worships someone or something, whether it is the one true God or an idea or an idol made by hands. And since worship is something that is inherent within us, it is inborn with all of us, God prescribes the way in which it should be done. In other words, you and I do not get to decide how we are going to worship God. It's tied to the very notion of the first four of the Ten Commandments. The first commandment tells us whom we are to worship. The second command, commandment tells us in what way we are to worship. The third commandment tells us in whose name we are to worship. The fourth commandment tells us when we are to worship. So the worship of God should pervade our lives. And while there's a general sense in which our entire lives are acts of worship, because we owe God our entire lives, all of our allegiance, all, all of our devotion to God, it is very clear in the Scriptures that there's a focus on the very specific worship of God with the gathered church. J.I. Packer provides a helpful definition of worship. Here's what he says. This is worship. Worship in the Bible is the due response of rational creatures to the self-revelation of their creator. It is an honoring and glorifying of God by gratefully offering back to him all the good gifts, all the knowledge of his greatness and graciousness that he has given. It involves praising him for what he is, thanking Him for what He has done, desiring Him to get Himself more glory by further acts of mercy, judgment, and power, and trusting Him with our concerns for our own and others' well-being. It's a very broad and helpful definition of worship. And so, when I talk about worship this morning, we are going to be dealing specifically with public worship or the corporate worship of the church. There's something undeniably different, something undeniably special, something undeniably unique about corporate worship. In corporate worship, we gather together in assembly as the body of Christ to worship our Lord. And all of the means of grace that God has given to us are present in the same place at the same time, in ways they are not in other ways. Hebrews 10, 25 exhorts us, Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. But what does that look like? How are we to gather? What are we to do when we gather? Today you'll hear many people say something like, It doesn't really matter all that much. I had a conversation a few years ago with another pastor who told me how important it is to him that things are always different. 
that there's always something new and exciting to keep people coming because in our culture, with all of its glitz and glamour, with all of the changes in technology and entertainment, we need to compete for attention, and that takes innovation, that takes creativity. I was at a conference several years ago for pastors, and it was sort of a, a pre-conference for a denominational meeting. I, I assure you we're not in that denomination. And the, the guy they had speaking who pastored a church of over 10,000 people or something like that, he was telling us how important it was for them to go bigger and better. So one year they turned their worship space into rodeo grounds, and, they, and he came out riding on a bull. Another year, they set up big dirt jumps and had world champion dirt bikers jump their bikes over his head. And of course, all of this comes with some kind of creative shtick that the, that the world will buck hard and try and knock you off, but Jesus will help you hang on. Or, or when you're with Jesus, you can jump to higher and greater heights and achieve higher marks or, or whatever. I'm not that creative. And you see, you see often, you see the removal of the pulpit. It's replaced with a bar stool and a table, so it's more conversational. It's less proclamational. It's not proclaiming the word, it's, it's having a conversation. We're talking. You see innovations in serving the ordinances of baptism in the Lord's Supper. I know one church wanted to express how Christ's body was given freely for everyone in a lavish way, and so they took their communion wafers and they threw them into the crowd there was a lot of cheering, there was a lot of excitement, there was a lot of laughter. There was no reverence or honor or sobriety for the fact that they were gathering to worship the living God, the creator of the universe. So let me put it this way for those who might say that it doesn't matter how we worship, but just that we are. It is important enough to God that when two men named Nadab and Abihu worshiped God in a way he didn't tell them to, he killed them. He killed them. And when their father Aaron began to weep over their death and mourn their death, God told him to get over it and move on. Drawing from that incident, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verses 28 and 29 writes, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Brothers and sisters, how we worship God is supremely important to God. And I will say this without reservation and with full assurance that this is the teaching of the Bible. I believe that the most important thing to God in all of the world in terms of what his, how His people are concerned is the collective gathering of His people in worship on the Lord's day. I do not think that is an overstatement. I do not think that is an exaggeration. I believe it is essential, and I believe the Bible teaches that it is essential. And tied to that, that the most important hour of your life every single week, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or a carpenter or a lawyer or a nurse or the president of your country, the most important hour of your life every week is the gathering of the church. We, we don't emphasize the Lord's Day and press on all of, of, all of us to honor the Lord's Day because we want to keep you from doing other things. We want you to do other things, but we want you to do all of those other things the rest of the week so that you can clear your schedule and organize your life so that on this day you can turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full into His wonderful face. 
This, brothers and sisters, this gathering right here, right now, every week is our foretaste of heaven. We, we can't take that lightly. We, we, can't, we can't put anything else in the way of that. We can't think it optional. We can't let the culture and our hobbies and our interests overtake what God has made most important to Him if we are to rightly and faithfully and reverently honor Him. So what is all of this? What is the regulative principle of worship? So we have the time, we have the day, but what is the principle? Very simply stated, the regulative principle of worship is the principle that the corporate worship of God is determined by and found within the Word of God, the Scriptures. In other words, if God's Word tells us to do it, we must do it. And if if God's Word either tells us not to do it or is silent about it, we don't do it. And because worship is so important to God, this area of the Christian life is not sufficiently addressed with a simple general principle of obedience. There must be, and there is, a very specific way in which God governs how He is to be worshipped corporately. And since God has given very specific direction in how we are to worship, we are not free to ignore that. We are not free to add to that. John Calvin writes, God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by His Word. That language is very important. Paragraph 1, chapter 22 of our confession says this, The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. So here's a simple way for you to think about this. If you have a question of why do we not do blank, fill in that blank with whatever, the answer is where can you find it in the Scriptures? Why do we not have skits? Why do we not have a dance team? Why do we not have a puppet show? Because God hasn't told us to. On the other end of things, some people may ask, why do we sing? Or why do we have corporate reading of the Bible? Why do we pray so much? Why do we have to listen to a sermon? And the answer is, because God tells us to. Now, it seems quite simple, but simple things aren't always so simple. To get to the heart of the text that we read in 1 Samuel, we have to think about what God is teaching us. Has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? As in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. Okay, so you see, it's easy for us to think that so long as we just do the right things and don't do the wrong things that we're okay, but that's not what the text says, is it? Likewise, as was the case with the strange fire of Nadab and Abihu, just because we do something with sincerity and conviction, just because our heart is in it, doesn't make it acceptable to God. A lot of sincere people are sincerely wrong. So doing the right things with the wrong heart isn't what God desires, nor is doing the wrong things with a sincere heart. God has called us to do what He wants, and gives us the Spirit of God and the means of grace to do what He wants with a heart that offers true, acceptable worship unto Him. 
Now, the church has always distinguished between what we call the elements of worship and the circumstances of worship. The elements of worship are those things that we find in the scriptures that we must do when we gather. The reading of the word of God. Prayers of various kinds. Prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of adoration, prayers of repentance, prayers of intercession. The singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The preaching of the word of God. The ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And lastly, the Bible makes optional the taking up of an offering. And so we look at these things that we do from the moment we have a call to worship to the time when the benediction is said as those things which are expressly commanded by God. So when I call us to worship from God's Word and when we pronounce the benediction, everything in between better be in accordance with God's Word. No more and no less. But there are other things that God has left open, things like that we call the circumstances, things like whether or not we have a microphone and a sound system, or what kind of instruments we use in our music, whether we sit in pews or chairs or on the floor, or if we meet indoors or outdoors, or what version of the Bible we use in our language, or what text to preach from, or what sermon series to do. Those are left to the wisdom and prudence of the leadership of a local church as it fits their particular context. So what we should see, ideally, we should be able to go to any biblical church in the country, in the world, and while there may be some differences in the circumstances, the worship of God and all of the elements should be the same. Should be the same. And I want to emphasize for us this morning how seriously we take that here. A lot of time and a lot of effort goes into planning this gathering. A lot of people put in time to make sure that things go as well as they possibly can so that all of us can worship without distraction. We want what is done here to be done excellently. We don't just throw down a few song ideas first thing in the morning to fill up some singing time. We think hard about all of the words we sing. Are they true? Are they biblical? Do they honor God? Is the tune singable? Does it fit the overall theme of what we're preaching? Is it fast or slow? Is it in a major key or a minor key? Is it an old song or a new song? We want to vary all of those things so we have variance in our worship depending on what we are dealing with, depending on where God has us in His Word. Sometimes we've sang things and later decided to ditch them because they didn't meet our criteria or we've, we've changed some words because they weren't theologically accurate. When we pray, we pray using God's Word. We want to pray God's Word back to Him, recalling all of His attributes and His promises. When we read the Bible, we want to walk through the whole counsel of God and so we read from the Old Testament and the New Testament, from the Law and the Writings and the Prophets and the Gospels and the Epistles. When we preach, likewise, we want to preach the whole counsel of God. So for 10 years now, my practice has been to preach a series from the Old Testament and then a short topical series like we're doing now and then a series from the New Testament and then a topical series and then back to the Old Testament, back and forth through the Bible. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we do it in the manner the Bible tells us to do it. We, we get our instructions from Scripture. And every month when we do that, you hear me read directly from the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 11 that gives us our guidance. 
When we baptize, we do that in accordance with the formula given to us by Jesus in Matthew 28, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we believe by fully immersing a believer in Christ who has publicly professed faith in Christ. So here's the thing. People may look at Redeemer Baptist Church and say, you know, I really wish they did X, Y, or Z during the week, uh, some program of some sort, uh, whatever that might be. And we're happy to hear those things, and we do a lot of those things outside of our time together in corporate worship. Those things are important for the body of Christ. We invest a lot of our time and resources into making sure they're valuable and useful and serving the purpose of growing us as a community and growing us in our faith in Christ. But if we have the best programs, if we have the best small groups, if we have the best Bible studies and Sunday school classes in all of the Western Hemisphere, but our corporate worship is not according to the Word of God, we have failed. And in the same sense, if we don't have any of those things going on, but we gather and we have simple, word-driven worship that honors God with reverence and awe in spirit and in truth, we have been faithful. Brothers and sisters, the word, uh, the, the word of God prescribes for us the worship of God, and it is a gift to all of us. He's not interested. He's not interested in ritual and burnt offerings. He's interested in having your heart and my heart. And the way he gets our hearts is by our doing what he has told us to do. Yes, he wants you to read the Bible and to pray alone and with your family. But even more so, he wants you to be worshiping with his people every single week. And if you're traveling, that you're worshiping with other brothers and sisters somewhere else. It's that important. It is the most important thing you will do all week. I don't care how important your life is. I don't care how important you are to your job or to this world. You will do nothing more important than gather with God's people on the Lord's day. And when I think of worship, I think of Jesus. When he took Peter and James and John with him and they went to the high mountain in Matthew 17. Remember, it was there that, that Jesus was transfigured before them. And the Bible says that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And then Moses and Elijah appeared and talked with Jesus. And so often when we gather, I get the same sense that Peter might have had on that day when he said, Lord, I love Peter, Lord, it is good that we are here. You think? It, if you wish... I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Peter didn't want to leave. He saw the Lord Jesus in his glory and he saw Moses and he saw Elijah and he didn't want to leave that place in that time. He wanted to pitch some tents so they could stay. Why? Because he had a taste. He had a taste of glory. He had a taste of what awaits all of us who are in Jesus Christ. That, brothers and sisters, is true worship. When we see Jesus in all his glory, and every week God gives us that opportunity when we gather together. The reality is that when all of that was over on the mountain, Jesus and his disciples had to go back down the mountain into the valley below. And what did they encounter? Immediately, a young boy with a demon that the other disciples couldn't cast out. They were faced with the reality of the world that is filled with sin, filled with evil, and filled with darkness at every turn. But, they had that moment in time. 
they had that respite from the world. They had their moment of heaven on earth. Do you see our worship of God in that way? When you leave here this morning, you and I will be walking back out into the sin-stricken world with all of its pressures, with all of its weight, with all of its challenges upon our shoulders. We have to go back down the mountain into the valley where the evil one prowls around like a roaring lion waiting for one of us to devour. We have to do that, but like the disciples, we don't go alone. We walk with Jesus. We go with the Holy Spirit who is at work within us. And friend, if you don't know Christ, you're still a worshiper. You're still worshiping someone or something. Most likely, it's yourself. You will never know the peace you are seeking if you do not know and worship Christ by faith. Turn to Him. Repent of your sin and join with the saints to give all reverence and all worship and praise and glory and honor to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is worthy of our worship. And if we're in Christ one day, our ever, we, we will be ever living that moment in the new heavens and the new earth and be spent in all of our God. We, brothers and sisters, will stand before the throne of God, not just for an hour once a week, but in unhindered, unbroken, joy-filled worship that has no end. But until then, until then, we give our hearts to this hour, this day, every week, in the way that God has told us to do so, that we can get a foretaste of this great gift that awaits us. Why would we want to do anything else? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. For your word that doesn't leave us confused and wanting and wondering, but for your word that tells us exactly what you desire in the way that you desire. And so we pray this morning, Father that all of us have a greater sense of what your word commands of us as we gather for worship, that we have a greater sense of the importance, of the necessity, of the urgency of gathering with your people on the Lord's day to worship. We pray, O oh God, that every time we gather, that each of us who are in Christ would have a great foretaste of what awaits us in the new heavens and new earth. Bring us to the top of the mountain and prepare us as we are sent back out into the sin-sick world that we may shine bright like Christ. We desire more of Him. We desire to know and to see His glory. And we pray you would do all of this for your namesake and for your glory and for the building up and strengthening and edification of your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.